Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Scripture is written to supplant human words and thwart human agency so that its wisdom might govern the affairs of men in the place of human self-interest. When we sit at home, when we go out, when we lie down to sleep, and when we wake up, we are commanded to recite God's instruction in the place of empty human words. But what happens when vain talk consumes our thoughts? What happens when we are no longer able to hear, let alone recite, God's wisdom? Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12, verses 30 to 32. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 295 of the Bible as Literature podcast. All of us know someone, in fact, we probably know more than one person, who is so far gone as a religious fanatic that they can't be reasoned with. We all know the person who speaks and doesn't listen, who is zealously self-referential, and has been that way for so long that their grasp on reality is almost gone. And there are different ways to get there. It's not just religion. There are, for example, people who tell so many lies that they can no longer distinguish between what is true and what is a lie. There are people who become obsessed with their own ideas to the point of excluding any other information. This self-referential mode of being is destructive. So when we talk about the sin against the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of Matthew, we have to think of it in terms of the consequences of self-referentiality. You get to a point where you are not only saying something other than what Scripture is saying, but you are so invested in what you are saying that you are no longer able to hear what Scripture is saying, let alone submit to it and act upon its commandment. Ideology is the lens you impose onto the world in order to see whether things are good or whether they're bad. One very tricky thing about religious fanatics, which you're talking about, Father, is that their ideology they claim is from God whether they claim it's from a dream they had when God spoke to them directly, or if they might claim that this ideology comes from Scripture. The problem is that once they hold that ideology, then that ideology becomes the truth and becomes the measuring stick of everybody else. After two questions, they will determine whether you're correct or incorrect, and then whatever you say, they will have an answer to based on their ideology. The ideology is ultimately self-referential. The only time we know that it is not self-referential is if it submits to something else. 
if it's going to be scriptural, it has to submit to the text. And since the ideologies are created by human beings, they're flawed. They're not scripture. They are the word of humans. They're not the word of God. If your ideology says anything that's different than what scripture says explicitly, then your ideology is wrong very clearly. They're no longer able to use scripture as a reference point because scripture cannot correct them. If they cannot be corrected, then they hold to their own truth. It is no small irony that the healing in verse 22 resulted in a person who could speak and see, because the one who is self-referential doesn't speak in the sense that their words are empty because they are their own words, human words, and they can't see because the light inside them is darkness. This is the Gospel of Matthew. The eye is the lamp of the body. If you are self-referential to the point of blindness scripturally, meaning that you can't hear, you have nothing to say, and your judgment is impaired, you will find yourself in a situation like the Pharisees in verse 24, who wrongly accused Jesus of casting out demons in the name of the devil, which is obviously a stupid accusation. And Jesus explains that by exposing not only their hypocrisy, but their foolishness and the example of the strong man and his argument about their own sons casting out demons. And now it boils down to this confrontation, and we laid the groundwork for this last week. The Pharisees are ultimately inconsistent. When they see good actions produced by Jesus, they must be evil because Jesus is not one of us. When our sons, our students, produce good works, they must be good because they're ours. The reference point is not scripture. The reference point is us. Are they one of us or are they not one of us? Jesus calls out this inconsistency and in the following passage escalates this to show that this is the ultimate sin. The confrontation is a self-made confrontation. It's no different than the confrontation between David and the Lord. David, who sat on the throne, but like any king, to the extent that he was a manifestation of what the people wanted, to the extent that he was asserting his own power, was sitting in opposition to the authority of God. That is what blasphemy is. That is what Satan is. That is why functionally there's no differentiation between Satan and the king in Scripture, because there is only one God. This is a very basic teaching in Scripture. You have many gods, but I'm telling you, that the only God is the God of Abraham. So why do you have a king? Taking it one step further here, when we start dealing with blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, if there is only one God and one king, and he is speaking from his throne, what are you talking about? Either you're saying what he's saying, and you're for his reign, or you're not saying what he's saying, and you are against his reign. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. This question of speaking human words or conveying through study, repetition, recitation, the words inscribed in the Book of Life, 
is a very serious one. You can see in religious communities today how this plays out. You have people who are self-referential and speak out of self-interest in a way that pertains to their own security. They defend gun control rights in the name of God. They defend hatred against Muslims in the name of God. They defend capital punishment in the name of God, all of which opposes the teaching of God. But they do so confidently in the name of God because they're self-referential, and they become a bit like the Pharisees in this chapter, because they call something wicked holy, and they then turn and call something holy wicked. The same could be said of all kinds of self-referential ideologies produced in our churches, Rich. This is just such a normal way of talking in the church, you hardly even notice it, you know, when talking about the people who are not in the church, whether they're of another denomination or of another religion or lack religion, or you're someone who is not religious and you condemn those who are religious. It comes from every direction, goes everywhere. I mean, this is a human tendency. If you're not one of us, then there must be something wrong with you. That's very often where it begins. And if there's something wrong with you, if you're doing something good, then it's obviously for some kind of corrupt reason. That's the only way to play out the logic. Jesus is contradicting that, and he's saying, look, I produce these good actions. You know that they're good actions. You're either going to stand with me or you're going to be against me, wasting your time rather than gathering, you're just scattering. Not only do they deny that these actions are good, by teaching so, they deprive the crowds, they deprive their students of learning. They cause sickness. They cause suffering. The reason Jesus had to heal the man in verse 22 is because he was damaged by the teaching of the Pharisees. When you oppose God's teaching, there are consequences because God's teaching is wise, and you, to the extent that you are self-referential as a human being, will choose a foolish path. I gave the example of political ideology and the insanity of people talking about the sword which the Lord bends into a plowshare as a divine right. I mean, (laughs) let's just pass over that discussion for a minute and talk about the reduction of religion into an ointment for your sadness. When you run around telling people that God is your best friend here to help you feel better, you're not teaching scripture. You're not talking about the biblical God. You're talking about something you made up, which is a reflection of you. If you're dealing with scripture, God is not your pal. God is a teacher who brings you a very difficult instruction. And very often, in fact, I would say systematically throughout the story from Genesis to Revelation, he comes to you as the one who brings the teaching in opposition to you to deny what you want, to undermine your goals, and to thwart your objectives. As Father Paul said, I think more than once on the Tuesday program, sometimes he even appears as an evil spirit. That would really blow the mind of the Pharisees here in the Gospel of Matthew. But they were blind like the man that Jesus had to heal, blinded by their own self-referential mentality. I hearken back to that person we all know, who is mentally ill, the religious fanatic, who talks so loudly and so fast they can't take a breath, and what they're saying does not make sense to anyone except them because they've constructed their own reality. 
This is what leads to the unpardonable sin. As soon as you say that God is your pal, or you're on God's side, or even worse, God is on your side, you can no longer be corrected. Your teaching no longer submits to God's teaching. That's the sickness. That's the self-referentiality. So any crazy idea that comes into your head must be divine revelation, because by definition, you're connected directly to God. And like you were saying a moment ago, Father, God works to undermine us and undermine our personal teaching, undermine our personal beliefs, because as soon as we believe they're ours, then we can no longer submit and we can no longer learn, and therefore we're lost. God works in our favor by undermining us. And this is something that's very difficult to understand because people think that the best relationship you can have somebody is with a pal. But your pal is not going to be able to correct you as a teacher or a father. So if you're a father and you're a pal to your children, you deprive your children. They're going to be lost in their own self-referentiality until you can impose a reference outside of their own brain on them. That's the only way they're going to learn how to submit to a teaching. And if you want to argue and try to explain to me, Father Mark, God is my friend. I don't know what you're talking about. How could you say this? Then I direct you to go reread 1 Corinthians because you sound to me like a Hellenist. Of course it doesn't make sense to you because the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. You are perishing because you don't understand the judgment that has already been brought against us, which is destruction, and that this destruction is how God teaches us. And it's through this destruction that there is hope because that is what puts man in his place. We are perishing. We are passing away unless we allow our words to be supplanted by the words of this text then despite the fact that we are humbled, despite the fact that we are crucified, despite the fact that we pass away, despite the fact, as Paul says, that we are nothing when we think that we are something, because we hitch our wagon to the word of the eternal king spoken from his throne in the heavens, then suddenly there's a victory. Then, even though we're temporary, because we are submitting to what is not temporary, we have a value, and we are not like those who are perishing. So if you're struggling with this idea that God is here to thwart your power, go back and read 1 Corinthians. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. We said this when we talked about the Gospel of Mark, but it bears repeating. This has nothing to do with human psychology and worrying about having mean thoughts or bad thoughts or thoughts against God. Your thoughts are irrelevant. They're passing away. God is only interested in what he has to say and seeing that his will is carried out. That's all God is interested in. And if you're so self-referential, that when you see the spirit at work, you call it the devil. And when you see the devil at work, you call it the spirit. And you can't hear any criticism because you're completely and totally invested in your own theology and your own reality. Then, of course, you can't be forgiven. And we hear, Richard and Isaiah, this beautiful text that everyone always asks me about because they struggle with the idea of God making people deaf and dumb. 
and making people ignorant, but it's the same function that Matthew is discussing. And he said in Isaiah chapter six, verse nine, go and say to this people, hear and hear, but do not understand. See and see, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people fat and their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. He is co-opting the stubbornness of the people and the self-referentiality of those who should be submitting to his teaching. He is inhabiting their stubbornness as a condemnation against them. And and Mark and Matthew, this is unforgivable. This is what it means to not be forgiven. This inability to see, the inability to hear, that's the first impression you get when you talk to a religious fanatic. They can't hear a word I'm saying. (laughs) Their own brain is making up words, and so they can't hear. They can't see. They're no longer able to perceive. And spirits produce fruit. That's how they work. You know, you have a spirit that animates the human body and whatever kind of spirit animates you to move around produces fruit, produces actions that reflect that spirit. So if you have the spirit of a demon, then you produce demonic acts. If you have the spirit of God, you produce godly acts. If you have a good spirit, you produce good acts. I mean, this is the correspondence. The blasphemy is if you see good actions, it can only be motivated by a good spirit. If you see holy actions, it must be motivated by a Holy Spirit. That's the only way it can function. This is a law of physics in the Bible. So if you say, yeah, I know I see those good actions, but those aren't good actions because they had a bad motivation. This person has an evil spirit, but they're producing good actions. Or even worse, these people have a demonic spirit in spite of the holy actions you deny that the Holy Spirit is producing the fruit it was supposed to be producing. You're denying the power of God to produce what he wants to produce. You undermine God's power by doing this, and this is the blasphemy. Even when you see godly actions, it can't be God at the source. Even though it must be God at the source, God must be producing these things. So you're denying what God is able to do in order to cling to your own ideology. You say, well, they're not one of us, so therefore it must be an evil spirit. It really doesn't matter if you intend to oppose God or you don't intend to oppose God. Once you choose your words over his words, you've opposed him. Intentionality doesn't enter into it. In the past, I've emphasized the Pharisees' willful opposition. I just want to be more specific. The minute you choose your words, your theology, your ideology, your political views, your emotional satisfaction, whatever it is you are invested in, the minute you choose that over Scripture, you have already decided to willfully oppose God. Your intention in the end doesn't matter. It's the outcome. Because of you, there's a man who couldn't speak and couldn't see. When will you hear, O Pharisee? Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks a word against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. We've spoken at length 
throughout our discussion of the New Testament, whether in Paul's letters or in the gospel stories, we've spoken at length about the headship of the Father and the weakness of Jesus before his Father, which is a correct understanding of that relationship. And here we see that differentiation again at work. We know that the Spirit can work in others besides Jesus. Yes, the Spirit comes to Jesus in the baptism, but in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit goes to the disciples so that the disciples can teach. The Holy Spirit is not bound to this one individual, Jesus, but it is a single teaching that the Spirit teaches. It is a single kind of fruit that the Spirit produces. When you deny Jesus, the Spirit's going to move on to the next person after Jesus. But if you deny the Spirit, then that which motivates anyone who produces godly actions with Scripture as the reference, you deny. That's why it's much worse to deny the Holy Spirit, because the teaching itself can't be effectual. To the extent that Jesus is a human being, just like us, he is weak and temporary. He passes away. It's only because he was raised in Galatians by the Father through the Spirit that he lives. As a man, Jesus was completely dependent on his Father for life. And the Spirit is the agency of the Father's power through the carrying of the instruction and the anointing of the teacher. If you kill Jesus, you can be forgiven because the Spirit can still work and still find a way to bring the teaching to you. But if you oppose the Spirit and you obstruct the work of the Spirit, it can't be forgiven. You're beyond help because you're not able to listen. And so God will prevent your ability to understand. If you are fighting the Spirit, how can you receive the Spirit of understanding? If you can't receive the Spirit of understanding, of course your ears are going to be shut. Of course your eyes are going to be shut. Of course you'll have nothing to say. Of course you'll be condemned and there'll be no hope for you. Because without the divine teaching from the one who is enthroned in the heavens, there is no life, and as Paul says, we are passing away. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.